why I ended up drinking a litre of vodka a night. Um, and I was literally self-medicating. And when I gave up, I realised there was a whole new world out there, a whole new life. You were abandoned by probably the most important person on earth. And I felt so alone. It's a very vulnerable place that you're in. Tell me, what's the future hold for you? Well, it's the doors are open wide, you see, and that's when, when, when you stop drinking, they, you fling them open. So, Dave, or Sober Dave, welcome to the podcast. So delighted to have you on it. So it's a real pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for asking. Of course, a three-hour drive and you've brought the sun from East Midlands. Obviously. That's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful here. Thank you so much. Thank you yeah. so much. So, obviously, you know, I know about your story. I've looked at your social channels and what you stand for. It's just amazing. Um, but tell me, what, what made you want to go in and help in such a way? You know, I've seen grey area drinking, the help you do on addiction. I'd just love to hear a bit more about it. I think what it, um, the reason for that was um, when I stopped drinking, it was after 40 years of, I would say, heavy drinking from the off. I had periods in between where I didn't drink that much. I was heavily into sport mm -hmm. uh, in my 20s, played a good level of football, uh, always had a tennis racket, golf clubs, you know, whatever it was I played. Mm -hmm. um, but when I stopped drinking, um, I realised the power of sharing my story with people. Um, and I don't know what it was, but I had something, whether it was because I'm a lad from Croydon with tattoos and I, I say it how it is, I'm yeah. honest, and that I seem to um, attract people to come and ask me questions, you know. Yes. Um, and then I realised that by giving back some of the knowledge I picked up and, and how I stopped drinking began to help them, mm -hmm. which in turn helped me. Of course. So it's a complete round robin. Yeah, fantastic. And so you've mentioned 40 years of drinking from the off. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. Um, I had a pretty quiet childhood, actually. Okay. Um, we didn't have a lot of money, um, but we had good dinners. You know, mum would always knock up a good Sunday roast and put the carpenters on the record deck back then and okay. you know but um i appreciated things uh -huh. but um when i was 14 uh my mum left the family home and she didn't say goodbye she left a letter for me um and at 14 years old that's a tough pill to swallow you know yeah. uh and it and it really knocked me and then shortly after that my dad met someone okay and then i felt really really alone rejected um, and there was a group of lads at school that I kept away from, but they kind of lured me into their nest. Yeah. And I was never a fighter, um, but I realised shortly after that I was a drinker uh -huh. because we used to ask the adults outside the off-licence, we had a bit of loose change, can you get us a can of Fosters and whatever, and I became the drinker mm -hmm. in the group, you know. Um and then I realised it gave me confidence, it gave me a sense of purpose, mm -hmm. and I belong somewhere, yeah. you know? And, and that's where really it began. Uh, and then, you know, over the years, I began to rely on it, which we can talk about later on. Yeah, of course. I mean, as you say, it seems like quite a big shift. You're in a family dynamic, and then it wasn't expected at all, your mum leaving? 
I mean, I was 14, so, uh, you know, I was into my own thing there, you yeah. know, um, and I, I knew they used to argue and yeah. stuff, but it, I think it came as a surprise to my dad. And then, you know, for three, four months after that, I saw him coming from work and he just aged 10 years. It really upset me. It hurt me. And, and I didn't know where my mum was. And, you know, for a lad to, for his mum to leave him. Yeah. It, it was a real shock to the system. And I found that by drinking, that numbed some of the pain. So I was just a baby. You know, it's 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 young to, to start drinking. I remember one day I drank a bottle of martini and I was so ill that night. that. But the next day I just went to school, going to school with a hangover at 14. You know, it's when I look back, I feel real sadness for that 14-year-old lad, you know? Yeah. I, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, like, struggling to even hear it, if I'm honest, because, I mean, what a shock system, as you know, at 14, we're developing, we're kind of becoming the man, you mm. know, we are going to be. And I always say, whenever we get trauma, there's, like, three ways we can respond. Yeah. We can fight, we can flight, run away, or we can freeze. Yeah. And... I think the people who freeze, they numb. Yeah. And they numb by doing something because the pain, they don't know how to cope with the pain. Yeah. And that's exactly what it was. And the thing then, I didn't do, develop emotionally either mm. because I was sort of stopping my emotional development there by keeping numbing out. And I was yeah. doing it all the time. Yeah. And back in the day then, you could go into pubs without ID. Okay. You, you could just walk in. Right. And I was a bit of a lump then, you know, like I looked older uh -huh. and my mates looked older uh -huh. and, and we would just go in and order pints and that. And after three or four, we were drunk back then. Mm -hmm. But we, we we grew up really quickly as this mob. Yeah. You know, it was a mob of lads and playing football and being out till two in the morning, but still having to go to school was bunking off a lot. And, you know, it, it, it changed everything overnight. You know, I, I went from being a really quiet, insular lad into being a little bit of a Herbert, really, yeah. within a few weeks. Yeah, I can understand it was how you coped, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a coping thing. Yeah, and so just give me some context. So how much are you drinking? Are you drinking weekends, every day? I, uh, I was drinking mainly weekends yes. then, the odds one in the week. And we, we got in with the older people as well, the, yeah. the locals in the pub, and they were encouraging it, you know, come on, boy, I'll get you a beer yeah. and whatever. So it was never mad, but it was enough for my age. Yeah. You know, any alcohol at that age is, is bad. Well, at any age, but, it, it you know, for me to constantly get drunk at the weekends. Yeah, at 14. And it's the development of the brain as well, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's that. And it was everything. It was just my physical health was was suffering and my mental health was suffering because I, I knew my mum had left. I didn't know where she was. She hadn't contacted me. So there was this array of emotions going around and it was almost like I was in a bit of a, a daze for a long time. Yeah, how do you cope? It's For me, I... I I actually don't know the answer. Yeah. You know, it's almost impossible. Yeah. So unexpected. Um, so you're, you're here, you're, you're 14, your mum's just left without any notice, you've got a letter. Can I ask, what did the letter say? Oh, well, it, it said, um, hi David, I'm leaving your dad 
um, things haven't worked out, I'll be in touch in the future. It, it was that. And, and to be honest, I'm kind of making up a bit because mm. it was so long ago. Um, I can't remember the exact wording, yes. but it was along the lines of that. So when I received that, I didn't, one, I didn't know it was going to happen, but two, I didn't know when I would see her again, yeah. if I was going to ever see her again. You know, so one minute we're having the Sunday roast with the carpenters playing and, you know, nice family yeah. sort of setup. And then next she's gone, my dad's in pieces and I've got him with this crowd. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, there was my dad didn't know what I was doing because I've gone off the rails. So yeah. it, it was a complete whirlwind of stuff that ha literally happened within three or four months. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can get it. And did you, when did you next speak to her? About a year later. A whole year? Yeah. Yeah, no one would expect that after reading that letter. No. And in those days, we didn't have mobile, no. so it was never like, oh, I got a text from my mum. It, it was a letter. Uh -huh. uh, and I agreed to meet her. And um, I, I can't even remember what that first meeting was like. But, um, yeah, it, it affected the rest of my life, to be honest. And my mum passed away four years ago now. Um, and... I was with her when she died and it was an emotional time because I'd held a lot of stuff over my life, um, resentment, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say hatred, but um, confusion and we never really talked about it, but I held her hand at the end uh, and I knew she was slipping away and I said, mum, I love you, um, you're the best mum I could have had. Mm -hmm. And she died. But the reason I said it was because I felt her leaving had made me the man I was now. Yes. Because I've got incredible resilience. I've had to learn to be self-sufficient. So in the long run, it I feel like it's done me a favour. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. at the time, it was just awful. Yeah. Knowing a little bit of your history, I, I, I completely agree. The resilience is clear mm. and and not just resilience, inspirational resilience. I can tell that you inspire a lot of people. Uh, you know, you are approachable. You say things in a way people understand. And um, I'm delighted for you that you had that moment where you have the understanding mm. that it actually was a helpful thing, not a helpful thing. That flies around at just the right time. <laughs> um, now, for me, I mean, it's, it's really powerful. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Um, and so I'm just going to go back to, we're now 14. You love sport. I, c I can imagine, I can see you now. You're like a healthy big guy. I bet you were great at sport. I bet you could drink and mask it extremely well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like if I drink, you'll see me in the morning and like, what happened to you? Yeah. But I, I you know, I reckon, you know, I can imagine that you were always very fit and healthy. Yeah. So just take me through the next few years. So you're numbing you're drinking, but obviously at that time, you're just coping and doing mm. the best you can. What then happened? Um, I think age was on my side with that. So I used to work hard, play hard. I could go out till four in the morning, um, come in absolutely plastered and get up for work at half six and do a full day's work and then crack on in the pub, you know. But um, I think when I got into my early 30s, I had a separation with my son's mum he was young, he was two years old, she didn't drink, mm -hmm. um, and it kind of came between us then, because I, I, although I'd grown up really 
quickly when I was young. I also felt like some of my childhood was stunted. So when I, George was born when I was 30, um, and I, I'm not sure I was completely ready for fatherhood, right? Mm-hmm. So when he was two, I was 32, mm-hmm. we separated, um, and I was always a member down the local pub, and I'd already got my nickname Glugs mm-hmm. because I could chuck them down. Like, I could drink six, seven pints an hour, mm-hmm. no problem. Um, so it began to change where it wasn't so much a social thing. It was going into this Young's pub back then, an old man's pub full of different characters, all best mates, but we weren't really. We were drinking buddies. Mm-hmm. But then what I started to do was drink indoors. Mm-hmm. And that is where it changed because there was an offie over the road. I'd go in there and get, back in the day, this strong cider called Diamond White. Mm-hmm. I, I, know, get, I know it, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would get four of them. Okay. But then okay. gradually, it was like eight of them. And then gradually, I wouldn't even go in the offie because I felt judged. So I'll mm-hmm. get them from the supermarket. So I'd have my stint in the pub. Mm-hmm. I would reduce my drinking in the pub because I didn't want people to think I had a problem yeah, knowing yeah. that I would go home to get absolutely bladdered, right? So I would go in there, have four or five, right, lads, see you tomorrow, blah, blah, and then go home and then open up the cider and quite often just pass out, um, blackout, you know, uh, or be a keyboard warrior, mm-hmm. where the, the chemicals from the cider would make me react in such a way that I felt frustrated or aggressive or yeah. something hadn't said the right thing so I'd start on the old texting yes. you know and then wake up three o'clock in the morning full of anxiety sweating done, yeah. looking at oh my god what have, what have I done here like you know um, and what came from that was fully drinking at home because I didn't even go to the pub in the end yeah um, so it manifested from being really sociable yeah. to then semi-sociable to then I was a solitary drinker. And that then, I had 10 years of solitary drinking. And, yeah. and then the levels ramped up because I wasn't accountable to anyone. No one could say, Dave, mate, you seem to be drinking a little bit too yeah. much now. You need to rein it in. No one, because I was doing it on my own. Yeah. As you said, you were masking it anyway initially, yeah. and that was you say around thirty-two years old, and you'd gone through this relational difficulty. You've got your son who's two at the time, and then it ramps up at home. Why do you think you know this all happened? Why? So, if we stop here at this moment, we look back from fourteen. You know, let's say thirty-four. So you've got this space of twenty years where you've gone from getting into a crowd that's drinking at the age of fourteen. You're drinking on the weekends. You, it's then I can see step by step in that direction ramping up to now it's home drinking consistently even less social why do you think that happened I think when I was masking out um feelings from what happened to me but I had several failed relationships as well mm-hmm. off the back of my drinking mm-hmm. um I had an unfortunate uh, occurrence when I was in my early 20s, I got married really young. Yes. Not to my son's mum, to someone else. And she had an affair okay. uh, and I caught them. That set me off on a spiral. So yeah. it was my mum's left me. Yeah. My wife's had an affair. Yeah. And it was quite cumulative there. Yeah, of course. I masked that 
um, by <clears throat> drinking, believing to myself I was enjoying myself, mm. you know, ah, sod it, let's go out and get drunk. But the more my life went on, the more things started to happen to me. Like I made lots of bad decisions off the back of my drinking. Um, although I was functioning, I was going to work, but uh, it was really affecting my productivity. Mm. Um, I was suffering financially because of the cost of it. Mm. Um, and it was all accumulative, plus the fact I was becoming more and more dependent on this coping mechanism called alcohol. I, yeah. I was relying on it more and more on a daily basis where um, during my mid-30s, I couldn't even envisage going a day mm -hmm. without a drink. You know, it was part of my tapestry of life of yeah. work hard, go to the pub. If I wasn't going to the pub, go home. First thing I would do is open up a cider, a Stella or whatever, and it became ingrained, like eating. It was mm. just like, well, it's dinner time, it's drink time, you know? Um, and and I become dependent on it. Yeah. Um, it's interesting just chatting to you. Um, we're looking at, like, addiction. Um, we're looking at addiction as a coping strategy. Um, it's obvious in those 20 years, let's say, you were just feeling a huge amount of pain. Mm. Um, that's what's clear. Um, one of the things I heard that I've always found quite inspiring is, and I love your name, Sober Dave. So this is not to take away from the Sober Dave, but um, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection. Mm. And I've always found that so powerful because um, to chase sobriety can be so difficult. Mm. It can be like a to-do. Mm. And I've always found it difficult with to-dos when I don't do them. Mm. I just am filled with shame. But actually, when you look at connection, and this is why I think you're so successful, because when I watched you, I felt like I knew you. Mm. You know, I watched you just, you know, prepping for this. I, I thought you were so warm. I thought you were so lovely. I would open up to you. And mm. I, you know, I take time to open up. And I think mm. part of that is you're naturally are searching for connection anyway. And I think, you know, when I look at, what happened to you at 14 and then why you got in these lads is you were searching for connection, I think. Um, yeah. And I also think, um, my journey of my drinking went from being incredibly social mm -hmm. to incredibly reclusive. Right. So I felt completely isolated in my drinking mm -hmm. because I didn't think anyone would understand it. Mm. Where I got to, why I ended up drinking a litre of vodka a night. Mm. Um, and I was literally self-medicating mm. every single day, right? And, and I didn't know who to turn to. Um, and I remember when I eventually made the choice to stop drinking, I went to a sobriety event in East London mm -hmm. and... I, I panicked. I didn't. I didn't want to go in. I got, went all the way there, and I was standing outside. Then I walk up the road. Then I walk back. Eventually, I plucked up courage to go in, and it was packed in there, absolutely packed. And there were speakers there, yeah. um, and there was one place on the sofa, and I was like Mr. Bean walking in, and I plonked <laughs> down on the sofa, and this bloke's drink went up in the air. <laughs> I made the right entrance, right, but 
afterwards I spoke to certain people there who were already sober and yeah. it it was like a warm glow for me that God there are people out here doing this you know yeah. and I remember getting on the train and it was full of drunk people and I was sober and this this was three or four weeks into my sobriety mm. and I felt part of something then mm. and that's why I recognize how important connection is because you were lonely enough when you've got a problem with drinking. You are so lonely because of the shame and the stigma that you can't even tell your best friend half the time, you know, because they say, you haven't got a problem, you're all right. But only you know how bad your drinking is because we hide it. It's like when you go to the doctors, they double it straight away, you know, like, but for a lot of us, it's worse than that, Mm -hmm. right? So we keep it in. So when you meet like-minded people that can really share their story with you or listen to you and understand mm-hmm. where you've been, it really does open up your feelings, you know. And it, and it's like a whole new world. The, the way I describe it is like you, you've had blinkers on and you're looking at the floor constantly, mm-hmm. like down. You're always looking down in life, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, you take your blinkers off yeah. and you look up and there's the sky, there's the sun, there's a cloud, you know. And I don't want to make it sound woo-woo, but it, it does open up so much in your life. That... I can imagine. <clears throat> so um, there's a saying that, um, and I thought, I read this saying, I thought actually was good for here. The saying is, only the true self can be creative. Only the true self can be real. And I wanted to add to actually, only the true self can bear the risk of deep intimacy. And the reason I think that's so important is, when you feel shame and you're drinking and you're hiding it, you're not being your true no. self. You've embraced your story and and a lot of your story is a, really about making the wrong choices mm. for a lot of your life. Mm. Yet you embrace it without the shame that others, or the stigma, others try to put it on and go, look, it took me ages to get out, but I got out and this is how I did it. And if I can help you, great. You mm. know, if my story helped, because I think the power of story is always so true and always so um, uh, transformative for people. I think stories can do that. But it's about being vulnerable to mm. be your true self. Yeah. And I think that's so powerful because shame will make us hide and shame will make us put us all, all masks on. And we all, to some degree, have masks. But the more vulnerable and open we are, the less we can manage our emotions. And we did talk about managing emotions. And I think you have to be your true self to be able to manage emotions. If you hide, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. And let's face it, right? I had a mask on for 40 years. Mm. And, and I role-played in several different situations yeah, as well. Yeah. You know, I, I was an actor. Being a master of it, I suppose. Yeah, I was a, a, a master, a seasoned actor <laughs> that I could go into any situation and I could play the part they wanted me to play because uh-huh. I was a people-pleaser as well. Yeah, because people-pleasing made me feel good about myself. You know, I've made them laugh. I've made them happy. I must be of some value mm. rather than the piece of crap that I thought I was mm. for my whole life, you know. Mm. So when you remove that, you have to sit with the true authentic self, right? Yeah. And for most Absolutely. people, they don't know who the hell that is. Yeah. So for me, it was like going back to that 14-year-old boy exactly. holding that letter, opening yeah. it. And, and it, it's like the power of like revisiting that inner child is yeah. so incredible. Um, but I have to caveat it by saying... I couldn't do that in the beginning. No, it was too much for me. Yeah. You know, like I had to concentrate on on not drinking. Yeah, half a you day at a time. Present initially. Yeah. yeah, and then for healing, 
you stay in the present, but you strategically revisit the past. I, I wasn't emotionally ready for it. You know, it, it was like coming out of prison and everything was different when I stopped drinking. Yeah. You know, it was like, whoa, what do I do? Do I commit a crime so I can go back into my institutionalized state or do I just sit with this for a while and go day by day by day, which I did. And, you know, it was hard. There's no illusion over it. Mm. Uh, it was really, really hard. The first night, I was absolutely desperate for a drink, but I sat with it. I kept busy. I went to bed at 7 o'clock, <laughs> woke up, yeah, and then the next takes. day was a new day. Yeah. So I, I dealt with it that way. And, and it's like a house of cards. You just gradually build them up and yeah. up and up until one day you think, do you know what? I don't want to kick them over now because yeah. that... I'm this far, you know, and then comes the authenticity and sharing your experiences and how you've done it and how you feel. And even now, I did a post um, at the weekend about how vulnerable I felt emotionally at the moment. You know, it, it you have to work constantly. It doesn't go yeah. away. It's a it's yeah. a forever thing. But it's what what you learn about yourself is in, incredible. Well, I think you've done the work. I think you've looked in and you've gone to the present, to the past. I mean, you mentioned going back. I mean, part of, I think, one of the reasons it was so difficult for you is, I mean, even when I hear you talk about it, I actually feel pain, mm. you know, because it's, you know, it's 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 a very difficult story. Uh, and that pain, you know, when, when I was, you know, hearing you talk about it, you were almost at 14 years old, which is one of your most formative ages, you were abandoned mm. by probably the most important person on earth. Yeah, yeah. That must have defined you, and the pain of that must have just been excruciating. It, it was, um, and and I remember um, when my dad met his new partner, um, there was a moment then that the central heating had packed up, and they were sitting downstairs with a gas fire on, and I could hear them laughing, and I was in my little box room listening to the laughter a few weeks even after my mum had left and and I th and I felt so alone so I went downstairs and there was huffing and puffing by his new partner and I and I, I said what's wrong and I looked at my dad for validation and he just looked away and walked into the kitchen and I remember leaving the house yeah. and bawling literally bawling yeah. like it felt like a lifetime of tears coming out and that changed something for me then. Mm. It was almost like I'm on my own now. Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't emotionally secure then. Like, I, I'd never grown up in a family environment where we were, I love you, Dave. You're, you're, I'm so proud of you. There was none of that. It was a practical childhood mm. where... They would make sure I was clothed, second-hand clothes, but that was okay. Mm. Uh, a good meal, a holiday in Cornwall once a year in a, in a tent or a caravan. Mm. But there was never emotional security. Mm. So when that happened to me, I didn't know how to manage my feelings. And and I think that's when the, this crowd realised what had happened and they put their big arms around me, come on, boy, we, we'll look after you. And that's what led me down that road. But I survived. Yeah. Because That's the of main that. thing. Yeah. I mean, it's normal, actually, if you think about it. You were looking for a home. You were looking for acceptance. Mm. You are looking for people to add value because you'd lost that foundation in mm. your life. And if if a group of people then go, yes, put an arm around you, it's a very vulnerable place that you're in. And, yeah. and the point is you needed something then. 
I didn't I didn't care what it was. It it was I was clutching onto anything. Yeah. You know? And and we had some great times. I mean it <laughs> Really, it it, uh, it allowed me to be streetwise as well. You yeah. know, I grew up in quite a rough area, and I learned a few tricks and that. And um, I, I'm glad it happened in a way uh, because I think I've turned out all right. But it's been a rough ride. That's all. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it, it, I think it's a very inspirational ride. I know um, I'm only getting part of how rough and how difficult it was. Um, so we've kind of gone back through we've gone 20 years i know it went on for 40 years we've in, been in this place where you had what was really probably one of the worst things that could ever happened it's not just the loss of your mother but it's kind of like the rejection abandonment all at one you know she's somewhere yeah where why doesn't she want to speak to me and this whole plethora of caring around that which is deeply going to impact your intimacy pathway and emotional development, as you mentioned. Yeah. You then, rather than address it, you numb it, which pretty much I think anyone would have done. Yeah. Yeah, and the way you numbed it and the way it happened was through drinking. So you've then, you know, gone through difficult relationships, which one can understand. I mean, I think the pathway of what happened there, I mean, we've all had difficult relationships, me, myself, and, you know, you're trying to find what's normal relationship in on in this earth when you've had the loss of a significant one so you've then gone to you said your mid-30s you're drinking every day you're masking take me a step further did it get better from then or did it get worse it got much worse okay um i realized that um i was going through a cycle of meeting women attaching to them um once they fell in love with me, mm -hmm. I would reject them. Mm -hmm. um, and I realised now that it's because I didn't want to be dumped first. Yes, right. You know? Um, so I, I needed the validation. That was okay. I was lovable. And once they loved me, like, bye, you know? And then I realised I, I can't do that anymore, you know? And I moved, actually, when I was 40, away from this pub. Uh, and I remember knowing it would be the last time I walked in there. I just knew it, right? And when I walked in, it was a typical, hello, Dave, mate, how you doing, son? And I knew when I walked out, they would say, prick. You know, like it was that yeah. kind. I, I yeah, saw yeah. through it I by it. then. I yeah. saw through it. When I moved to this house, it was a little cottage in the middle of, not middle of nowhere, but it was out enough. So I then started bringing drink indoors and be Become more and more solitary in my behaviour. Um, I would isolate myself. I would lock myself in. So, for example, on a Friday, I would uh, always finish at work early. I work for myself, so I plan it. Three o'clock, go shopping, big trolley, everything for the weekend. I wouldn't come out till Monday morning, and I would go through three liters of vodka, uh, a box of wine case of beers you know like i would go mad for that yeah. period and literally crawl out on a monday morning to start again knowing i would get drunk that night you know yeah. um i i lost connection with everyone my neighbors were always having parties they asked me along and i would say i'm not coming i'm out and i would sit there in the dark mm -hmm. behind the sofa with my bottle of vodka mm -hmm. because i thought if i go to the party People are going to watch me drink, know how much I'm drinking, so I'd rather sit in on my own in the dark, you know. So I, I, 
I didn't have relationships. I put on weight. Mm. It, it was just a spiral downhill further and further and further that um, my, I like to say, emotional well-being mm. was at a rock bottom. My health was shocking. I mean, everything had gone south, you know, like blood pressure, cholesterol. I was on antidepressants, the whole caboodle, mm. you know. I lost all my confidence. Uh, I wouldn't answer the phone. I wouldn't go to work. So going from someone who loved to laugh and whatever, it went into someone that was really hooked into the addiction of alcohol. Yeah. You know, uh, it was shocking. Yeah. I, I, and, you know, the way you say it, it kind of makes sense, the steps. It's just the steps in the wrong direction, wasn't it? Um, where you're drinking more at the um, pub, but then you're losing connection there. Yeah. You're then drinking more at home. You then know you're drinking too much. Mm. And it, it's, you sound very skilled, actually. And so you're so skilled, you know, if I go out, people will see. <laughs> and yeah. so you're gifted. And so you, you're gifted at hiding. You're gifted at masking. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting because um, there's a concept called life traps and abandonment's a life trap. And it's, it always says someone who's been abandoned or feel they've been abandoned, what happens is they feel like their self-worth was hit, especially if it was done at a young age. Mm. And they take from it that I can't be loved. Mm. So then they go into a new relationship wanting to be loved. They then get loved and then they feel a fear yeah. that they cannot describe. Do you know why? They don't want to lose that love. Yeah. And so what they do is they self-sabotage the love before they lose it. So it's actually this negative cycle that actually makes you feel abandoned all over again, yeah. which then would lead to more drinking naturally yeah. because that's yeah. how you numb. And I think that's probably what was happening to you. And it's funny, people judge that person going, oh, he can't commit or look how awful he was to that woman. Look, he, you know, she loved him. and But they don't unpick enough to go... This was a maladaptive coping strategy. This was the way of you surviving. I think at that time, accepting real love, until you'd look back, was almost impossible for you, really. 100%. Um, the way you described that is spot on, the self-sabotaging. Um, and until I began to look within myself at my own self-esteem, self-worth, that would have gone on forever. Yeah. Uh, and the drinking, obviously just spiraled that so it was a double whammy yeah. you know uh, and it was only till when I stopped I, I had to strip everything back completely to shell and start again it was almost like learning to walk again mm. you know and I've got that mind I'm really like I love to explore I'm curious about a million things so I start to explore who, who am I actually mm. um, and as I said before it all the childhood stuff, I had to pack it away in the loft mm. and think, right, it's there to be looked at, but not now. Mm. But like the basic stuff, like, can I love myself? Mm. Can I accept myself, appreciate myself, mm. who I am? Well, I start to explore that. Um, and I realised I was, mm. you know? I, I was a, a good man. Mm. And, and that kind of, with the stopping drinking sped that process up you know it's like i am okay and i am beginning to help people and people are coming to me for 
I, I hate to say advice, but mm. guidance maybe. Mm. You know, guidance of how have you done it? Mm. How can I do it? And sometimes it's just listening. Yeah. You know, you don't have to give answers. You can just listen to someone. Absolutely. Uh, and then they unlock their own thing. Mm. But it felt like a, a lifetime of, of imprisonment in my own torture that I created myself. And I was just pouring petrol on the fire all the time, you know. Mm. Uh, and it, it took me until I was 54 to stop. And, and there would be a lot of people, in, especially men, I would say that, that mm. would go, do you know what? I've been drinking all my life. There was a point, mm. blah, blah. And I think that's my niche as well. As I always say to people, it doesn't matter how old you are, think about the next five years ahead. What quality of life do you want? Absolutely. You know, when I was drinking, the doctor took my blood pressure and he said, to be fair, you could drop down any any minute. It was terrible. My yeah. cholesterol was sky high. Um, as I said before, antidepressants. My re- I had acid reflux that was so bad that I would projectile vomit acid out the blue anywhere. Yeah. It would just come out, yeah. right? I was 20 stones. However, that is in kg. That yeah. shows my age. But yeah. I, was, I was really... My visceral fat was at a, a higher level dangerous level you know and all these things are off the back of drinking poor food choices bad decisions anxiety you know it, it just there was nothing ever good about it mm. yeah it's funny I, I mean if I'm honest I'm quite emotionally touched by the whole story and I can see the drink had impacted you just in your health from everything, as you say, from your organs, probably to your skin, to your mental well-being. Um, but the powerfulness of the story that I just heard from you was actually quite unique. And um, I'll tell you why I'm touched. From what I see, and if you can allow me just to say what I see, and if, and if it's wrong, please tell me. You had a 14-year-old who who was in a family, was happy. <laughs> yeah, as happiness can be. And then had a huge trauma event that led to massive pain. And from what I see through the next few years it's someone going I'm not worthy of love looking for love but starting the foundation of I'm not worthy for love and looking for love trying to search for it and then numbing when can't find love can't find connection can't find the meaning to that someone's life and what you said that's so interesting is that 14 year old boy is now 40s in the future 54 and has then said I am loved because I love myself mm. And then that foundation of looking around the whole world, looking down every pint, looking down every vodka, cider, diamond white, has come to the place where you've looked inside yourself and you found that love, self-love, that's then giving you the foundation to overcome your addiction. I think that's, I, I just I just love that. And I can see how it's affecting the whole body, but I just love that as a as a psychological journey. Um, so, well, I mean, that's amazing. I, d- I thank you for that. Uh, and I... It didn't even start with self-love. It started with like. Yeah. Because I hated myself. Mm-hmm. I couldn't look in the mirror. I couldn't even walk past a shop and see a reflection because it was someone else to me, which mm-hmm. was like my addiction. It was like an uh, alter ego, mm-hmm. you know. I, I knew I was an emotionally intelligent person inside, mm-hmm. but I also had this huge elephant in the room that I couldn't get rid of every single day mm. it, it you know we all heard the story when you wake up in the morning hungover and you're like i'm not drinking tonight i'm not drinking all week sod that but by lunchtime you start to feel better again by two o'clock you're like i might have one mm. 
and then you're off buying the same amount you bought yesterday and it's the hamster wheel again. The only thing I would say maybe that's slightly different to what you said that I've realised since stopping drinking as well is I realised that because mum and dad didn't tell me they loved me yeah. or they were proud of me, I think I felt quite lonely growing up as well yeah. because we all love a hug. Yeah, we all love to be told you something to be proud of. So I think it started before that, you yes. know. Um so there was a lot of work for me to do to, mm. to validate to myself that I am lovable. I am someone to be proud of. I'm proud of myself, you yeah. know. Um, but by removing one thing out of your life, which is what it is, can open up so much, like, for the future. And I quite often say... There, there used to be a film with, uh, I think it was Adam Sonic called Click, and you had the remote control, and you could want, he, he wound his life for And I say, imagine yourself in five years. Yeah. Who do you want to be? Where do you want to be? What do you want your health to look like? Mm. You know, wind it forward. Uh, and that's what I did when I stopped drinking. I imagined myself in three months' time. Yeah. And that did the trick for me. You know, mm. it's like three months out of 40 years isn't a lot to ask for right yeah so give yourself that at least you know and i say to people try a week mm -hmm. sometimes try a day just to see how it feels journal write things down experience mm -hmm. life without it and then see where it takes you you don't have to say you're giving up forever but you got to start somewhere right yeah so and that could be just making those small changes mm -hmm. to try and Get it out of your life, basically. I mean, what you're talking about is the awareness, isn't it? I think you probably knew you had a problem most of your life, but you then got this awareness that this is not how I want to live. It, it was like my mum died three months before I gave up. Mm -hmm. And I had an experience, um, and it wasn't a dream, and it wasn't reality. It, it was an out-of-body experience. And I was walking through an old mansion house, like a really big old house, lost. I didn't know where, what, big wooden panel walls and that. Mm. And I walked through this door and I looked right and then my mum was sitting there, age 40, mm. in an immaculate dress, shoes, hair. And she said to me, I want you to know I'm all right, David. That's mm. all she said. And I've gone, mum. And I sat with her and I held her hand. But that was it. it uh, but when I woke up in the morning, it was like, what happened? Yeah. What has happened there, right? Yeah. And for some reason, that had an impact on me. And I, I do honestly believe that she's with me, helping me along this thing. Because I stopped, which it's important to say that the amount I was drinking mm -hmm. could be dangerous to stop. Yeah, I should have got medical yeah. help there, you know. But I didn't. I stopped. And, and I white-knuckled it until I went to this thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it made a difference. There was something that happened. It, it was like an epiphany to me. Mm -hmm. If you don't do something now, you're going to be joining her somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it was like, I can't go on like this. I cannot carry on. And I, I stopped. And 
on paper it looked like spontaneous sobriety that I've just stopped, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. I was telling myself for a long time I had to do something about it. Like constantly every day, yeah. I cannot keep doing this. I've got to do something about it. And I just think it was the timing uh, that happened that changed everything for me. Yeah. And so you've you've got yourself sober. Yeah. Trauma pains happened. Yeah. How do you keep yourself sober if you don't want me asking? Um, connection. Yeah. Connection's a huge thing. Um, I started connecting with the community and um, I started holding events myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spoke at events. Uh, I appeared on podcasts. Um, and then I developed my own podcast, which came completely out of the blue. I mm-hmm. thought, you know what, I'm going to make my own podcast. And I recorded the first one and it went to number four in the Apple charts. And it's Fantastic. like, wow, there's power here somewhere, yeah. you know. And I'm on I'm on the end of season seven now. Brilliant. And they're life stories and yeah. people love them because I don't say too much. Mm. Uh, a bit like this podcast, you know, you're allowing me to tell my story, you know. And people resonate with that. They mm. identify to it and they think, Do you know what? I don't feel alone now because mm. I really understand what this person's saying and they've got out of this. That means that there's a chance I can get out of it as well. Absolutely. You know, so there was that connection with a podcast. I've appeared on panels, different things like peppered around that. And then it's almost become my brand now, you know, it's like <laughs> um, I, I did a, a grey area drinking course and now I'm a coach and that's a whole new conversation which is brilliant because it's either before you either don't drink or you do drink and you're an alcoholic mm. there's a huge void in between of people that don't drink all the time mm. uh, they might not drink a week but binge at the weekend they might have two glasses of wine a night and stop at that mm-hmm. but when you say well just stop then oh, I don't want to do that mm. you know that that's a grey area drinker yeah. and so I specialise in that as well and that as well kind of removes the shame of the word alcoholic. I think so. A lot of people identify to yeah. that and it works for them, but it doesn't work the for term. me. I th- I, I, the term grey area drinking, I think will, will catch a whole cohort of people yeah. who wouldn't associate with being an alcoholic. Mm. Um, and But would probably look to get advice yeah. on grey area drinking. I think it's a great, you know, I think most of life is in the grey. Most of life yeah, is not absolutely. black and white. You know, you may have actually found it easier to engage earlier on in your life in a grey area drinking, but where would you go? Like, if I'm honest, you know, you go back 10, 20 years, a grey area drinker, where would they go? What would they look at? What would they listen to? There's no podcasts, you know, there's, no. you know, even the internet wasn't as developed then now, but I think it's a great resource to help equip people because as you said, it was, it wasn't just a, a moment, although you had that, that dream for a long time before you were telling yourself, I have to stop this, I have yeah. to stop this. And and we equip ourselves, don't we? And we, we do small things that help us on the right way. It's the steps. It, steps it plants direction. the seed. That's yeah, what it that's does. Right. So these conversations I have, you know, I might do a post and then three months later, someone will say, um, that one post mm-hmm. really hooked me into thinking that I've got a problem mm-hmm. and I'm now six weeks sober. You know what I mean? The power Fantastic. of the the conversation is immense. And now we've got social media that we can use in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, is so powerful now. Um, because years ago it was AA and that doesn't work for everyone. No. It works for some, but not everyone. And now there's lots of different groups around and 
online communities and apps and there's all sorts of things you know um i've got a community in my app that's lovely and we do a couple of zooms a month and check in and people hold on to that i think do you know what i'm gonna not drink till the next meeting to the met and you build it up you know uh it's amazing now there's so much help out there now yeah i i I think you're right i think well aa i don't think will work for everyone but the the element they got right was the connection, the group work. But I think having multiple streams, like you say, that yeah. can plant seed. I'm the kind of person that seeds work. Yeah, I can hear something, but I'm not. I don't like to move on things too quickly. I yeah. like to think about it. I like to analyze it. And plus, as you say, what I love that you said was I survived. Yeah. With my life, I look back. I survived. I, I did the best I could with how I was equipped to do it, and I'm delighted with where I've come out so tell me what's the future hold for you well it's the doors are open wide you see and that's when 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 you stop drinking they you fling them open Uh and uh it's never a linear road you know i compare it to riding a bike you get out there and it's sunny and it's a straight road and um you're away right but Mm. then you go around the corner and there's a great big hill and it starts raining it's like what do you do yeah do you chuck your bike in the bush and get an uber back no you keep on pedaling you know so i'm open to what lays ahead is you know i believe in the strength of the universe Mm. uh i've written one book there might be another i don't know but whatever it looks like is a hell of a lot better than when i was drinking believe me (laughs) (laughs) that's all i can say really about that of course tell me about the book yeah, I wrote the book, and the irony of that was when I was drinking, I always used to say to my mates, throw away comments like, oh, I could write a book about this, mm. you know, my hangovers and whatever. So it's a part memoir mm. which starts from the beginning about what I've talked about today, yes. but it's also a self-help book because I'm a grey area drinking coach, so I go through different forms of recovery. Mm-hmm. I give resources, tips, tricks, and mainly motivation as well Mm -hmm. because we all need to feel motivated you know with everything that's going on at the moment there's a lot of doom and gloom around you know with all the the fuel prices going up and all the interest rates it's easy for someone to think do you know what it's not the right time so i carry on drinking so i motivate people to try and reframe the conversation yeah very good um and just see it slightly differently. And you only have to tweak it sometimes to take you off at a different direction. Um, and so hopefully by the time they put the book down and it's read, they go, do you know what? I'm going to give it a go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the aim for the book. And and so far, it's only been out a few weeks, but it's got a lot of five-star reviews. And, Fantastic. Yeah. What's it called again? One for the Road. One for the Road. Which Perfect. is the same as the podcast. Yeah, very good. Very yeah. good. And so, I, I mean... Just to kind of end on that, I think you've got this reframing that you mentioned. And I think when I hear about your journey, you reframed everything really for your advantage, even as you said, bye to your mum, even as you go forward to your sobriety, sobriety, what happened happened. And I've now reframed these to positive elements in my life that give you resilience and strength. And, you know, I think that's very inspiring and you are motivating, you are inspiring. And thank you so much for sharing your journey so honestly with us today. Oh, thank you so much for asking me. Perfect. Thank you.